Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome to another episode of the AFSC series, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is an Air Force Academy graduate who wanted to become a foreign area officer. Before coming a FAO, he held roles of instructor and evaluator pilot in airframes, including the F-16, C-21, and the T-6. His current role is the air and space attache at the U.S. Embassy in France, where he coordinates advances and interoperability in the strategic and operational domain in France. Ladies and gentlemen, Colonel Andrew Heyman. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for that introduction. Good to, good to be here. Good to see you. Um, we've talked a few times over the last uh, several months, so it's glad to be doing this uh, recording. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I, I'll take accountability here. I dropped the ball a little bit. This is our recording number two. We had a little bit of technical difficulties, but through uh, Colonel Heyman's good graces and patience, we are, we are here doing recording number two. So thanks for coming on. Hey, no problem. Last time we talked, I was in Paris and uh, finishing up my uh, last uh, active duty assignment there at the embassy, U.S. Embassy in Paris, France. And mm -hmm. uh, now I'm getting ready to, uh, I'm on terminal leave and retire here in a couple of weeks. But hey, Andrew, I just got to fix one thing. I, I flew the F-15, not the F-16. I um, offer all my F-15 brethren out there, F-15C. I, I got I, I to make that fix. Thank you for correcting me because legit, I have it written up here on my intro as F-15, and I must have just read it as F-16. But thank you for making that distinction. Hey, no problem. Um, so uh, to get things started, uh, first off, congratulations on um, an illustrious and long career to um, this service in our country. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yeah. Now that you're reaching the end of it, do you think you could bring us back to how it all started? What brought you to the academy initially? Yeah, sure. Um, I uh, grew up in Minnesota, in Prairie, Minnesota, so a suburb of Minneapolis, and not a huge military community there, but uh, I grew up next to a Flying Cloud Airport, which is just a small private airfield, and I would drive by it every day to school and saw airplanes flying every day and saw a couple Navy fighters, uh, F-18s, fly one day, and I just uh, you know decided that's what I wanted to do is be a pilot, a military pilot, so put my mind to getting into the Air Force Academy and was able to do that and uh, was part of the, entered in 1988 and graduated in 1992. So I loved, uh, I loved being at the Academy. You know, I try to get back there throughout my career a handful of times just to kind of talk to different cadets on what it means to be a fail. So I'm glad to be doing this podcast with you. Um, you know, I love my time at the Academy as I reflect back at it. Um, I got to, I was a civil engineer major, mm. played some sports at the academy. I was on the rugby team. Oh, yeah. We won, a, we won a national championship when I was there. It was great. And I was also on the boxing team. And, and some of those, uh, so those cadets, mostly on the rugby team, are still some of my, my greatest friends here 30 years later. So good memories, good memories at the academy. Yeah, no, I, uh, I have a lot of good friends that are on the rugby team, both in squad and like some kids that I used to cut their hair. And let me tell you, they are a tight-knit group, um, and they, they're good at their sport. I mean, 
I think they're looking for a little bit more funding right now because uh, the alumni or the AOG whatever, uh, like AOG alumni whatever, they contribute a lot of their funding so that they can go to France like they did last year or just like trips across the country to to play better schools because around here I think they're kind of a, a force to be reckoned with. But I think it's also an interesting aspect of it. I talk to a lot of people that are pilots and they tell a similar story of hey, they live near some sort of um, runway or military base and they saw planes flying over and they always thought that was so cool. And I'll tell you what, I didn't live anywhere near a military base. I didn't ever consider wanting to be a pilot even when I got here. So I just think it's so interesting that if you kind of there's I, I don't know if there's some sort of correlation between seeing something cool like a, a military jet taking off as a kid to, you know, actually aspiring to be it. But like when I when I was growing up, I never had any sort of aspiration to become a pilot because I just thought it was completely uh, something that was unattainable. Yeah, I, I would just say I don't I, I don't know. You know, we, you and I were just talking before the podcast, before we started here about, you know, other countries and, and you know, how how people get stovepiped into different career fields and whatnot. But it's nice to have a choice. And yeah, you're, you're getting in your management degree here. It's nice that we can have choices. I always wanted to, like you said, I don't know what it was, but as a young kid, so seeing the airplane fly and reading some books on, on military flying, I just knew I always wanted to fly airplanes. I can I can tell you, I didn't know I. I wanted to stay in the Air Force for 30 years, but I, it's been just a great experience. Uh, I, I, all I knew is I wanted to fly airplanes, and, and I got to do that and and then had some of those inflection points in my career. You know, when my first initial pilot training commitment was up, I was still loving flying airplanes, loving being an officer in the Air Force, so I decided to stay in. And then that next inflection point for me was at the 20-year point, you know, do you want to stay in or get out? And again, I was still enjoyed what I was doing. I had leadership opportunities that I really enjoyed and and had some opportunities to go on to be a FAO, a foreign area officer, and uh, have really, really enjoyed every aspect of my career, every assignment. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that the, the seed was planted yeah. way, way back, you know, 40 years ago when I was a kid seeing an airplane fly. So I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, quick antidote before before we get into it. I know we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but last week um, I had the honor of attending the superintendent's dinner, um, and it, part of General Clark's opening remarks was he introduced the um, chef in catering service, and he happened to be so – I forget exactly what country, but he was from somewhere from the Middle East, and he, uh, General Clark let him um, tell his story. You know, Middle East kind of like war-torn country, not a lot of opportunity going on. Apparently, Marines were going through his, his like rundown village, and he basically went up to the commander and was like, hey, let me cook for you and like your men. And then apparently he was such a good cook that um, the commander or whatever made him his personal chef. I think it was like some higher ranking, you know. It's not everyone just has a personal chef, but he brought him with him. And so then wow. he ultimately brought him back to America. And now he, him and his kids have full citizenship here. And he just kind of spoke about how grateful he was for our country and our opportunity and made the distinction that, you know, 
he's like, hey, if I was back where I was back home where I was born, I would have none of the opportunities. My life would be basically nothing. But the fact that I'm in this land, it makes me, it gives me the ability to save and give something to my children. And um, like, like you were saying, or you, you alluded to our conversation before, we have the opportunity of choice. And I think it's easy to take it for granted that, you know, because we're just immersed in it, that we take it as normal when globally it's not. Yeah. Yeah, that's a neat story. I, uh, I, I can tell you that whether it's a country we're involved with in combat or, you know, like Iraq, Afghanistan for the last several decades, um, the host nation, I mean, we, we couldn't do what we do there without their support. You know, in my role in serving in a couple of U.S. embassies, abroad in Morocco and in France, you know, the majority of the people that are in an embassy are come from the host nation, you know, mm. Morocco or France. And, and yes, yeah, so we have solid, solid partnerships with all those countries. Um, and it's neat to hear the story about the, the chef, you know, coming back, uh, being the personal uh, chef in a combat zone and then coming back to Colorado. It's, that's pretty neat to yeah. being able to bring his family. Yeah. So I guess to get right into the questions, um, you started off as a C twenty one pilot and then transferred to an F sixteen or F. I said it again. Uh, you switched over to an F fifteen. I can't see today. How does that happen? Yeah, good question. Well, I went when I went through the academy. It was just right after the um, the the Air Force was doing a uh, a. Sh- uh, reorganization where we lost about half of the fighter squadron. So for a couple of years during pilot training in the mid to late nineties, no one had the opportunity to go to fighter cockpits or very few people did. Um, so I, you know, did uh, fairly well at pilot training, but didn't get to, uh, didn't have the opportunity to go to a fighter. Uh, so took, chose a C-21, you know, it's always the needs of the air force, but based on how you do in pilot training, you get to choose. So I chose a C-21 to, Andrews Air Force Base um, kind of showed up there a little, you know, I was happy to have my wings, happy to be flying an airplane, but wasn't jumping up and down about the mission of the C-21. But I tell you, I went there with a good attitude and just um, thoroughly enjoyed that airplane. The mission was to do VIP transport, so mostly Pentagon uh, high-ranking officials, but then also to season young aviators to mm-hmm. see cheaper airplane to to operate than some of our bigger airplanes at the time the 141 or the c5 or even the c17 today so i I, uh maximized my opportunities there i got to fly in the middle east uh europe south america all over the united states Uh, i was able to upgrade to instructor pilot and evaluator pilot and lo and behold you know three three years later we had new leadership in the air force and they said hey we need to train some some fighter pilots in the year groups that didn't get the opportunity so that when we need operations officers and squadron commanders, you know, 10, 15 years from now, we have a pool to choose from. Mm-hmm. So I uh, applied for the crosswind board and was able to get, I got chosen on the first round of that, which was great because I actually had orders to go to McCord to fly the 141, which is this now long extinct airplane. But uh, uh, I, I got to fly the F-15C or go, go into training for that and, and really enjoyed my time flying that airplane so i guess a lesson learned from that and i'd say lesson learned from my whole career is you know 
it's important to be resilient and responsive and always be professionally and personally ready for change because you never know if you're going to get if you're going to get pegged to deploy or going to combat or you know have a new assignment uh so so yeah being resilient and responsive is, is really important and um yeah so that's how that's how i went to the f-15 it was a it was a cross board you'll see you know for the cadets out there Every once in a while throughout your career, you'll have opportunities to cross flow into different career fields or do different uh, opportunities, normally career broadening and they're great opportunities. So, you know, be ready, be ready for some of those uh, opportunities. Yeah, actually, this summer when I went to Hickam for ops and they, they're like, OK, yeah, the fighter pilots, they score the points like they're on offense, but we often get the assists. That's that's kind of how he how he framed it. Yeah, I th and I think, you know. There's being on the pointy end of the spear, but the spear doesn't, you know, take off or launch without without all the support aspects behind that. So, you know, from you know the one stripe airman that's you know turning wrenches on the on the flight line, or you know doing the admin in the in the squadron or whatever organization, and every every person, every airman, everyone wearing the uniform or civilian supporting is critically important. So whether yeah whether you're flying a the latest and greatest F-35 or, you know, a, a Gulfstream airplane that's supporting the decision makers, you're still a very important part of the part of the mission. Yeah, so I had an operational assignment in Alaska, and then I went to the schoolhouse at Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City, Florida. Um, yeah, I had a couple uh, deployments to uh, the Middle East, uh, defending uh, the no-fly zone in, over Iraq, flying out of Saudi Arabia and, and Turkey. Uh, in a little bit in Dahran as well. Um, loved that. Loved every opportunity that I had to fly combat missions. You know, it was uh, intense. You know, as a as a fighter guy, you're, all the training that you do is to is the support going into into harm's way, and and we got to do that a couple times, and it was uh, really rewarding. Um, and then as an instructor pilot down at Tyndall it was pretty rewarding too. Just tra training the new guys, new guys and gals how to fly. Uh, the F-15 was was adorable. I loved it. Yeah. So I guess flying internationally with different countries. Do you think that that had any impact on interoperability of like understanding how a sortie with American and French? Uh, like pilots that speak a different language. Did, do you think that helped at all with your time as FAO? Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the cool things we got to do on, on training days when I was deployed in Iraq was to fly against the other the other uh, countries that were there. So as a young F-15 pilot, I got to fly against a couple of mirages uh, on, on a couple of different training days. It was it was awesome, you know, just seeing the capabilities of another air, of another country, another airframe, and how you know the French flew uh flew airplanes uh was was really neat um, and then you know my assignment after um after i got to be a fail I, I came back to fly t6s and had the opportunity to to be a squadron commander in iraq in the t6 so i had u.s air force uh instructor pilots working for me and we were training the iraqis how to in the in the t6 mission so basic pilot training and, and then instructor pilot training um and those were all super neat opportunities. Needed need uh, opportunities. It was kind of ironic too. You know, my first three assignments to Iraq or in the Middle East AOR was to essentially destroy or prevent the Iraqi Air Force from flying. And then I went back, you know, 
10 years later as a squadron commander training uh, the Iraqi Air Force how to fly airplanes. So huh. it's kind of, kind of ironic uh, how that uh, the turn of historical events in, in that region, but it was neat to be a part of all of it, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it is weird because, I mean, I'll see German cadets walking around the academy sometimes, and I'm like, huh, it's crazy what 100 years does, huh? But, I mean, if that happens within the span of 10, that's kind of wild. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the scope of this episode is for those that are looking to be a foreign area officer. Um, so to dive into that, you can become a FAO from any career field or any AFST. Is that correct? That is correct, Andrew. Um, so the foreign area officer career field, it is a, a primary AFSC, but you don't go into it until usually the, depending like six to 10 year point, depending on if you're a, a rated officer or not. Mm -hmm. um, but once you do, so for those cadets that are interested in becoming a FAO, the process is there'll be a board in that six to 10 year window that you can apply for. Um, and if you get selected, uh, you're gonna go into the FAO uh, pipeline training. And the, the uh, pipeline training consists of language training. So depending on what region you go to, you may learn French like I did, which is typically six months, or you may learn a, a more difficult language such as Russian or Chinese or Japanese, which is typically a year long training. But then the other aspect of the pipeline is you get an international affairs master's degree. Then you go into your region for six months of training, of hands-on training, either at a U.S. embassy for half the time or doing more cultural and language immersion in that region. And the regions, you know, are UCOM, so Europe, Europe AFRICOM, so the Africa continent, um, SOUTHCOM. You know, South America and Central America and then the Pacific. So pretty large regions and, and a lot of different languages and cultures to get familiar with. But that's the, that's the pipeline training language, uh, international master's degree, and then in-region training. And uh, I kind of skipped over how to get selected for uh, to become a FAO. Um, really, it's, uh, like I said, you can't get selected to become a FAO until after you're in, in your career for, for six to ten years it's i think it's 10 years if you're a rated officer because the air force wants to get um their you know their return on investment for the pilot training or navigation training whatever whatever that happens to be but sure really the really the best way to be competitive for FAO is to be the best officer you can be in your uh, career field so whether that's maintenance intel some kind of admin or flying you know, because when, when the I've sat in the last two developmental team boards for FAO and where we chose the incoming group of FAOs as well as kind of vectored uh, the existing FAOs to, to different assignments or school slots. And, and really what stands out is um, is how well you're doing in your career field and what your, uh, what your senior raters are saying about your performance. It's important, you know, if you have if you have some language skills, great. Continue to do that. There's a LEAP program that I'm sure a lot of the cadets who are doing foreign language are familiar with. So, um, language is important. If you have some regional experience, that's important too. But really, what it comes down to is is excelling, you know, because we want the best and brightest 
officers in the in the FAO crew to, to go and represent on the front lines of uh, of really diplomacy uh, mm. as a FAO. Is there any, uh, at least in this point in time, any career field that disproportionately shoots like they may have more slots, like pilots or maintenance has more slots than Intel or something else? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say yes, um, but I wouldn't choose, you know, for cadets who are maybe potentially yeah, listening to this podcast. Yeah, use on behalf of that. Yeah, no, but it's, I think it's fine. But but you know, the the pendulum of, of of Manning throughout the Air Force swings from year to year. So I wouldn't say it's. I wouldn't make your choice solely based on that. But but typically the intelligence career field. Uh, has a lot of, uh, has the majority of uh, allocations to become FAOs. The way it works is, you know, each each year when the when the, the develop the FAO developmental team is getting ready to select FAOs, headquarters A1, so the personnel, um, each each AFSC, each career field will allocate one or ten um slots to become fail so in typically sometimes you know in certain career fields maybe there's only one or two so you have to really be the top person top person top officer in that career field whereas typically in the past couple of boards that i've said on the intel career field has the most uh, opportunities to cross fill to become a, a fail uh, but it, but again, that varies from year to year okay so we've kind of discussed um diplomacy as a, like a large term yeah how does diplomacy actually get carried out by different um aspects of a foreign area officer yeah great question um, i guess i'll break that response into two two ways two different describing two different kind of roles as a fail so as a foreign area officer with that with that regional uh and cultural experience that you're, you get through your training, you know, the, the, the decision makers, the military decision makers are looking to you um, to make good recommendations um, because you, you've got the skill set to do so. Mm. So you're either going to serve on a staff. So that staff could be in Washington, D.C. on the joint staff or on the Office of Secretary of Defense, OSD staff or on the air staff. So that, that'd be one staff you could serve on is in the Pentagon on one of those three staffs or in one of the regional components for a staff. So I mentioned UCOM and AFRICOM. That's most of my experience. I've served in CENTCOM as well. But so let's just take, for instance, AFRICOM. Um, AFRICOM is headquartered in Germany. Um, so you could sit on the AFRICOM staff, either in the J3 or the J5, so operations or plans and programs, and be an advisor to uh, you know the, the colonels and the general officers that are running those uh, organizations, or you could potentially sit on you know USAFE AF Africa, which is the Air Force component to to uh, Africom, which is sitting which we where you serve on the in in Ramstein Air Force Base Germany and either sit in the A three or the A five typically or the A two the intelligence shop and and work on those particular staff. So those are those are typical fail kind of jobs if you're doing a staff job. So mm. Pentagon or regional command or a component command. And each each region is each region has got uh, components. If that makes sense, I can elaborate on that if, if you want more on that. But but then the other major 
job that a FAO does are the three jobs that I did in my three main FAO jobs, and that is working at U.S. embassies, either in the Office of Defense Cooperation or as an attache or as the senior defense official and defense attache. So I did all three of those roles. Um, you want me to talk about those roles? Yeah, if you could break little? those down as well, that'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah, sure. So my first job was in uh, the Office of Defense Cooperation in the U.S. Embassy in Rabat, Morocco. I was right out of uh, fresh into my FAO training. You know, I got a master's degree at, in international relations at the Naval Postgraduate School and did six months of French training, and then boom, I was off to the embassy in Morocco. And we didn't do in-region training at the time, but the FAO program in the Air Force has, has matured, and it's it's uh, you, we've now added a six-month in-region training. I didn't do that. I just went straight to the ODC job. And it was really rewarding. You know, you talked earlier, we're asking questions about working with a, a host nation in, in their Air Force. So I, I worked directly with the Moroccan Air Force. At the time, they were deciding to modernize. So I helped them buy F-16 airplanes and all the associated equipment that goes up with an F-16. So, mm. you know, the helmets, the weapons, the, uh, the training piece of that. Um, and then also another major job that you do in the defense cooperation job depending on what country you're working on uh, but exercises is, is a big piece of that so we had uh, a couple exercises that the air force and the department of defense did in morocco african lion it's a huge was a land-based exercise but now it's a joint exercise with, with airplanes so i did a lot of work on those efforts and then again you know if you're working in a defense office of defense or security cooperation in Europe, it's different than what it is in Africa or Southcom. Or if, if you have a you know very sophisticated military, you're going to be doing different different aspects of uh, of what you do security cooperation, depending on how sophisticated the uh, the military is with that nation, or what our relationship is, uh, you know, bilateral or multilateral with that organization. But but anyway, that's what I did in my first job as a FAO um, mm-hmm. in Morocco, and then. It used to be, this is kind of giving you some background on, on the FAO job, but it used to be as an Air Force FAO, you were a FAO and then you came back to your original AFSC. So for me, a pilot, and then you would go back to becoming a FAO for an assignment and then back with well, the Air Force about three years ago, changed that. So if you decide to be, to if you decide you want to be a FAO and you get selected to be a FAO, that is now going to be your primary AFSC. So you will stay in that AFSC for the rest of your career with a few exceptions. There are, you know, if you're a pilot, you can, you can do a FAO enabled tour where you can come back and fly airplanes or get a command opportunity. But uh, for me, that was my first FAO assignment. I was fortunate enough to, uh, back then I was categorized as a Middle East, North Africa FAO. So I was at Morocco, was middle, it was North Africa, and I was also doing some Middle East stuff or trained in the Middle East uh, AOR. So I got to command a squadron in Iraq, which kind of was, was nice because I was a Middle East, North Africa guy. But we've since divided the regions into be aligned with the COCOMs. So you, Europe, Africa, South America, and the Pacific. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was my first assignment. My second assignment was actually second full-up FAO assignment was to go back to Morocco as the senior defense official and defense attache. 
which uh, I would say is probably the pinnacle fail assignment, um, meaning, you know, you are the defense had to say you're not you're representing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the joint and the uh, in the Secretary of Defense to the government of Morocco and to the U.S. ambassador at the embassy there. So you're the senior DOD representative in country. Uh, so a joint job um, representing the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, and um, the Marine Corps. And it was just an awesome assignment doing, uh, you know, not only doing represent representational events, but, you know, involved in all aspects of military engagement in the country mm. i feel like i'm talking a little bit more let me let me get steered back onto your your course of direction there andrew well no i to be honest it's a lot of it's abstract and what i want to ground it with is yeah. what does this look like um you you mentioned uh representation events i'm assuming just because you're a fao it's not like you're just going around and translating stuff it's about um connecting some sort of message or like perception of the US, like so that other countries kind of understand what's going on. Um, if you can clarify that as well, but um, also how that correlates to what you're actually doing at these representation events and what you're doing to bolster relationships. Yeah, okay, yeah, good question. Um, so yeah, translating, I can tell you, I didn't, I didn't, I did very little translating. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. a, I'm proficient in French. Uh, can carry on meetings in French, but I'm certainly not at the level of doing, you know, one-on-one -on -one translation. We there's usually folks you hire to do that, um, but but again, yeah, you're expected to be fluent in the in the language that you're trained in in the region. Um, but as far as day-to-day -day stuff, what were you doing? What was I doing as a fail? Um, you're, you're really rep like I, I looked at my role in, in France when I was at, that I just the assignment I just left is, is General Brown's direct representative to the French Air Force. So it was important to stay abreast of what we were doing, whether that was agile combat employment or, you know, uh, what what uh, the safety commander, the UCOM commander was trying to get through with as far as partnerships, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the situation of the war in Ukraine. Um, so staying up on policy, staying up on current events, and then representing those to the French Air Force, the French Space Force, uh, and the French Ministry of Defense. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, at representational events, for instance, Every uh, in France, there was 150 embassies, by the way, um, with diplomatic relationships, and each one of them would have a a national day, like our Fourth of July day. You know, the French have the Bastille Day. Every country's got a national day, and most likely a, a military day. And I would be invited to to those events, and you, I would go and represent uh, either the Air Force or the embassy or the ambassador, depending on how how high the level of events was and and it was it's important to, to know you know current events what's going on you know either politically in the united states or militarily within the air force because you you get those kinds of questions all the time and mm -hmm. um, so so that's one aspect of the representation right?
Hey, real quick, hope you're enjoying the episode. If you are, could you do me a favor and follow and leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? And also follow the show on Instagram at 4.the.zoomies to see clips of upcoming episodes and stay engaged with the community. Thanks for your ongoing support. The other aspect too, especially being in France, and this was a really rich um, assignment for me as far as just historical and cultural experience. But, you know, France was unfortunately the host of two world wars, you know, World War One and World War Two. So there's a lot of Americans that, you know, lost their lives in France in World War One and World War Two, and, and the French take that very seriously. So there was commemorations for either plane crashes or battles that took place throughout France. And uh, for the last four years, I had the opportunity to be at D-Day uh, commemorations where we would welcome in World War Two American World War Two vets, and there'd be, you know, French resistance uh, um, folks that would be at these uh, commemorations too and it was just neat to wear the uniform represent at these at these ceremonies you know lay a wreath um give speeches often in french and in english uh at, at some of these events throughout france it was just really touching to see how the french community see uh don't ever forget and they always remember and they pass that on from generation to generation so that's kind of a representational event outside of paris but the ones representational events in Paris were, uh, you know, some people associate di diplomacy or diplomatic life or serving at a U.S. embassy with sipping tea and you know, going <laughs> to these and drinking champagne. I, I can say, yeah, there is a decent amount of that. Um, uh, no I, became, <laughs> I became a connoisseur of French wines and champagnes, but, uh, but, uh, but no, that's, uh, to be honest, is, is, is a really just kind of a small part of what, what you do as an attache or a, a FAO. But it is an important part of, of what you do because you are representing. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'd go to these events and there'd be, you know, a thousand people there. You know, maybe 10 percent of that was military. The rest were Department of State or Ministry of, of uh, Ministry representatives from other countries. And I would, you know, if it was an event that I was wearing my uniform to, uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes it, different groups of people would congregate in different parts of the of the room or wherever wherever this uh, event was being held. But oftentimes, I would just go into the middle of the event and just kind of stand there and just kind of see who wants to talk to me, who wants to talk to the American. And you know, it would it would be you know, fifteen seconds before someone would come up and hit you up on, hey, what do you think about this, or what do you think about that. And, you know, that was part of the job, you know, mm -hmm. see, you know, either relaying a message from from uh, the Pentagon that would normally take place in a more more uh, private, uh, formal exchange. But also to hear what other people in other countries and other diplomats um, wanted to say or comment about certain world, uh, global situations. So it sounds as though the because uh, I just interviewed a PA officer, um, the representational events that sounds somewhat similar on the line. You're kind of like the public yeah. facing representation of America, at least in a different country. And then to bring it back to like these kind of events with other countries, officials, and then you end up is it was General Brown your direct report? No, as the uh... Well, as a defense attaché, I mean, 
my direct report was the uh, was the uh, geographic commander. So the UCOM commander was the direct report, and then um, as an attaché, you're actually technically working for the um, Defense Intelligence Agency. So the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, because they're the ones that control um, are responsible for the attaché system. Okay. Um, but as, as the air attaché in Paris, my direct report was the defense attaché there in Paris, and then um, a senior general officer um, in, in the Pentagon, but it wasn't the chief of staff, but it wasn't General Brown, but that's essentially, you know, when I, when I would meet with uh, the French chief of staff or the, or the vice chief of staff, which was pretty regularly, you know, I, I knew all of the senior generals in, in the French uh, military um, or Air Force and Space Force. You know, they looked at me as General Brown or, or uh, General uh, Raymond's direct representative from whether it was the Air Force or the Space Force. So, um, so it was important to, to make sure you had those good uh, understandings of what was going on in our Air Force, which, you know, is obviously quite a bit larger than majority of air forces and space forces out yeah feo is a dead end job um and that kind of makes me think about because i mean i hear it from a cadet i don't know where they heard it but i mean they've got some sort of perception of that how does the actual promotion or career progression of a feo go uh, great question um I would say it's certainly not a dead end job. We have not promoted any uh, general officers that came up directly through the FAO ranks, but that all changed about three years ago. Um, and now the FAO community is, is the Air Force doesn't just promote every, doesn't look at everybody in a large pool. They have different, I think it's a total of six different pools that you get promoted against in mm. FAO. Is, is in a separate pool now. And the intent is to deliberately develop uh, one and two star fails. And then from there, it, it's kind of a, you know, it's a different process once you get to two star and above level. But um, I would say certainly it's not a dead end job. Um, I think it's becoming more and more important as a, the three and four star joint community. So the, the different services recognize the value that a fail brings to the really the global fight and, and being, you know, at the tip of the spear because you know you can't you can't add it, you can't make the right decision as far as uh, how to how to uh, approach a a country or engage with the country's chief of defense or or chief of the air force without really understanding the the background in that country, you know, mm. the regional dynamics, not just the bilateral dynamics of the U.S. and that particular country, but but how that country factors into the the uh, regional dynamics, the regional organization, whether that's the U.N. or the ECOWAS, you know, for West Africa or um, or where they sit on, you know, their perspective of what's going on in the in the world around us, you know, with some mm. of the decisions that you know, Iran or Russia or China are making, um, each country has a vote in how they're going to respond to that. And if, what the FAO brings to the decision makers is, uh, is uh, you know, the background, the historical background, the cultural background, and how all those factors play in. And that's one of the, one of the things I really enjoyed about the job is, you know, whether it was in Paris or Morocco, 
when we had not only military leaders come in, but um, Department of State or other, or you know, in, in Paris, pretty much every every interagency U.S. government uh, organization is represented. So, for instance, if the Secretary of State was coming in, or one of the deputies in the State Department, or you know, CIA, FBI, um, if they were coming in to engage with their counterparts in France or Morocco, there would normally be a country team meeting. Um, and my role or the role of an attache or FAO is to sit in that country team meeting where there's, you know, maybe, you know, eight to 10 folks from the embassy. And we, you know, our role was to prepare the, whoever the senior representative was to, for his or her um, interactions with their counterpart. You know, so totally outside the DOD realm, but the, the Department of Defense perspective was was important, whether you're talking economics or politics or or finance, you know, to have an understanding of uh, the uh, the defense role was, was really important. So I, that's one role I really enjoyed about being a fail. I, I, I think I got off track there, Andrew. Your, your question, we were talking about uh, like promotion rates and I guess oh, promotion rates, yeah. I think it's I think it's kind of interesting that um, more generals aren't FAOs because, like you were saying, I mean, you have the operational flight background of, I mean, the regular stereotypical general in the Air Force, but you also have this um, depth of knowledge in understanding geopolitics probably proportionally better than other people do. So I'm surprised that because my, my assumption is that understanding how different countries interact is an important factor to the decisions that you make as a general. So I'm just surprised that there aren't more. Yeah, no, I, I think, I, but I think that the tide is turning on that. And, uh, and the U S army has, I think, uh, has prioritized the fail role more so than the air force has. But again, that that's changing over the last three years. The restructuring of the U.S. Air Force FAO program uh, has really, I think, hit a hit hit a home run in, in how we're making it a, a single track now. So at the at six to ten year point, when you become a FAO, that you're going to stay a FAO for the rest of your career. I think that really helps. And in um, it's a it's a couple years away, but in a couple years, I'm sure we will have a deliberately developed FAO who's been a FAO for his his or her whole career. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the uh, the army right now, the, right now the the UCOM commander, who's also the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, that's a pretty cool title. But uh, it's a four star army general, General Cavoli, and he is an army fail. He was an Olmsted scholar back when he was a I think a captain or major, and he's been a fail his whole career. Um, and now he's you know the four star leading Europe and leading our efforts uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, in coordinating, you know, with the hundred plus countries that make up the European command. So, um, so I think that speaks volumes for what the, you know, writ large with the Department of Defense thinks of FAO, and he's a strong proponent of that. And there's, there's other, you know, four star in the other services. Admiral Fogo, who recently retired as a Navy four star, was a FAO. Um, and, you know, our current uh, two-star that's in the Secretary of the Air Force Office, uh, General Cheater, is, uh, was a, a South America FAO when he was a, a major. You know, he, he went outside the FAO community after that. But, uh, but no, I think the tide is turning in, in the, you know, certainly for the cadets who may or may not be listening. Um, if you decide to go FAO, you know, after you 
go through your uh, initial AFSC for six to ten years, uh, it's a I, I I absolutely loved it. You know, uh, it, I think uh, you, you have a opportunity to, to make a difference in a real way. And one of the things I enjoyed about it is serving in the embassies is is you there's a lot of autonomy being away from you know a base or a squadron or a wing that <laughs> uh, you're you know you, you know a little bit more discretion on your part maybe yeah i mean it's it's certainly a, a mature you know major league kind of a ball game that you're playing because you're dealing with um, you know ambassadors and chiefs of chiefs of uh, the air force and chiefs of defense so i mean there's a lot to be expected from you but uh you, you know like a, like everything in the my military career you know you're well trained you're well prepared and and, you know, you're expected to go out and lead and, you know, uh, think on your feet. And uh, the, and there's a lot expected of you, but, you know, it's all something you're trained for and you wouldn't be in the job if you weren't ready for it. So mm-hmm. I, I've, I've loved it. So I, I highly recommend it. It's, a, it's been a great career field for me. And the other thing, too, is a, as a pilot, um, there are flying jobs available with the FAO. So we had a C-12 airplane in Morocco. As when I was, so when I was a defense attaché, that air, that airplane falls under the the uh, operational control of the defense attaché office, which, as the defense attaché, was the office I ran. So I mean, it was it was nice to have that airplane, and we I flew all over Morocco, North Africa, and Southern Europe, uh, doing uh, doing fail stuff. So it was great. Can you share if there's any cooler missions that or anything that you were a part of as a FAO where you could directly see the result of your work? Yeah. Let me give you one example, maybe in Morocco, one in, in, in uh, France. So in Morocco, I mentioned earlier, this African lion exercise, um, it typically was a, a reserve Marine Corps, U.S. Marine Corps exercise that happened every year. And I was had a I had a small role to play in it during uh, when I was there in Morocco in the, the first assignment in the defense cooperation office. So when I came back, you know, five years later as the defense attache, I was observed this exercise, the African lion again, and it was uh, kind of a execute, wash, rinse, repeat, do the same thing every year. And I just was like, man, Morocco is such a great partner. It's such a... Um, it's got a lot of airspace. It's got a lot of terrain. It's got a lot of oppor- opportunities for training that we're missing out on as a as a partner with Morocco. So I wanted to see that exercise expand. And so in my role as a defense attaché, I would you know work with Africom, the J five, the J three, and some of the components. So I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but a component is um, the military organization underneath the regional command or the COCOM. So okay. Africom, it's Air Forces Africa, Navy, Naval Forces Africa, Army Forces Africa, Marine Corps Forces Africa. So I engage with all those units in, 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 or the, those leaders and tried to uh, really show that how strong of a partner Morocco was and some of the benefits to partnering with Morocco f- during this exercise. And it took a couple of years, but over the course of two years, that exercise expanded to be the largest uh, exercise in Africa. Um, and now it's a fully joint um, multinational 
exercise that you primarily funded by the United States and primarily the primary two partners of U.S. and Morocco, but there's all kinds of other Africa and European partners that participate in that exercise now. And and that, you know, I don't take full credit for that, obviously, at all. But one of the things I was able to do was just exp you know, highlight the opportunities that partnership with Morocco from a defense perspective, you know, the different opportunities and you know, they got great ports, they got great opportunities for amphibious landing, they got, you know, sophisticated runways um, and, and um, a lot of areas where we could partner and get a lot of training out of it, you know. So yeah, that was one uh, tangible effort as the, as the defense attache that I was able to really highlight to that two and three star level within AFRICOM and the components, invite them down for you know, on behalf of the Moroccan um, government to engage with the Moroccan military and really just see uh, the potential uh, of a partnership had for uh, for the U.S. forces. Um, so that was that was neat. That was rewarding. And to see what the exercise is today here, you know, six or seven years later, it's it's unbelievable. It's uh, we have F-15s, F-16s, B-52s. We have, you know, naval ships going into their ports, doing a lot of humanitarian assistance efforts uh, with field hospitals down in the southern part of Morocco. Um, you know, there was just an earthquake in Morocco last week. I wouldn't be surprised if as part of this next African lion exercise that some of the humanitarian assistance and, um, you know, uh, medical uh, exercise uh, TTPs that we need to exercise are going to be focus towards, you know, some of these uh, areas that were damaged by this earthquake. Mm -hmm. So th those are just some, that was a neat opportunity mm -hmm. in Morocco. Um, and then in, in France, a, a good example is uh, of, of a tangible effort as a working on the di diplomatic scale. Um, one of the things you do in, in these offices is you're in charge of overflight. So anytime there's a government or military overflight of a country or landing, it goes through the Defense Attaché Office. Um, you know, just as an example, in, in France, we probably have five to six hundred U.S. government overflights or landings of France every month, and that all happens through some of the processes within an embassy. Um, but the uh, USAFE, U.S. Air Forces Europe, and UCOM European Command wanted to as part of a bomber task force uh, effort. So flying B-52s, B-1s, sometimes B-2s, wanted to land an airplane in France. And this is something that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. part. And uh, it was in the task board from UCOM. And you know, France France doesn't typically, I mean, there's no, there's we have U.S. air bases in Italy, U.S. air bases in Germany. Uh, Spain, Portugal, we don't have them in France. And that's because France, you know, is very uh, um, uh, autonomous, if you will. I mean, they, ha they, they, they don't want U.S. air bases in France because of uh, their own politics. So to land a bomber in France, get gas and take off again, is not something that was, was really desirable. But it was a priority to our global strike commander. It was a priority to our UCOM commander and our USAFE commander. So uh, I saw that tasking come down. I engaged with the USAFE commander directly, and he said, yeah, it's a priority. So 
I did some backdoor work with the French Air Force, you know, at the 06 colonel level and then at deputy air chief level and, you know, and then uh, elevated that up to uh, make sure our ambassador knew that we had this request, we wanted to do it, and, and ultimately talked to the French Air Chief and then set up a meeting with him and the USAFI commander, the, our four-star Air Force commander in Europe there. And they talked it out and, you know, eventually got briefed to the chief of defense. And it, ultimately, they went all the way up to the presidential level in France. So, <laughs> um, and that was, you know, just through, you know, talk, knowing who to talk to, talking to the right persons, connecting the dots. Um, you know, if it had just gone gone across as, as a generic request or had gone across as uh, a U.S. request without the right priority on it, it just would have been, you know, it wouldn't have happened. But ultimately, you know, air chief to air chief, uh, chief of defense to chief of defense, they talked about it and said, yeah, we want to do this. And so a month later, a B-1, Air Force, U.S. Air Force B-1 landed at an air base in France, did a hot pit refuel, so got gas. We had a crew of 12 airmen who deployed to do this hot pit refueling. It says B-1 landed, got gas. We had a really dynamic uh, pilot, co-pilot on the B-1. They got off the plane while one of the engines was still running. It was getting gas, and they invited the French air base commander and his team to come up on the B-1. They gave him a bunch of patches, high-fived. <laughs> Kind of had a cool, uh, you know, uh, operational moment there on the airfield. You know, they took some pictures, got off. The refueling was done in under an hour, and they were airborne, and it was that. And it was, you know, check the box into, hey, we now have an airbase in France where, you know, if we need to, we could use that as a as a refueling base. And it was it was pretty significant for. Uh, for UCOM, USAFI, and, and Global Strike. And, and those are the kind of things that, you know, if that, if that had been left to a staff or someone without kind of FAO slash diplomatic kind of savvy or experience, it, it just wouldn't have happened. Mm. Uh, we would have made do. We would have gone to another country. But it, it's important to, to have those kind of linkages and liaisons in, e in each country. And that's, that's just a couple of reasons why the FAO uh, expertise is important. No, that's a really cool, uh, the story that you got going on there. I mean, I, we emphasize agile combat employment here at the Academy. Not that we really know what it means, but I think this is a, an active example of it. If I, if I'm interpreting it correctly. Absolutely. That was part of, uh, USAFE's agile combat employment exercise, you know, to, to be able to have, uh, airfields that we can operate in and out of uh, with the support and conjunction with uh, a host nation. Yeah. Well, I can really appreciate the the relationships that you're building at the fail level. If I, um, I think I'm trying to do my own part here. If I could introduce you to my, my French roommate, his name's Dion. <laughs> oh, speaking of the microphone. Good afternoon, sir. Hey, uh, bonjour. How are you? <laughs> This is Jan. So you're Jan, you're on Cadet Exchange from Salon, huh? Yeah, that's it. Like for for the semester. Yeah. Well, nice to meet you. Are you enjoying your time at the uh, Air Force Academy in Colorado? Yes, I am, sir. I mean, it's very it's very interesting, like to to have a different point of view point of view to see how it works in in other academies. So really interesting. It's a great time. 
Nice. Uh, for, I've, I've been to Chalon de Provence, where your academy is uh, several times. One of the roles that I did uh, as the air attaché in Paris was to go down for your your saber ceremony every uh, December and be part of that. Uh, we, we normally have, I think right now we have eight cadets in Chalon. So eight cadets at the French Air Force Academy. And you probably are one of eight that are there at, at USAFA. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Awesome experience. And I think this is the 53rd year continuously that we've had an exchange, 52nd or 53rd year uh, that we've had an exchange between the Air Force, our two Air Force academies, which is the longest uh, that we have currently. Yeah, it's thing like this. Like the first exchange was in 1969. So, yeah, 63, 64, uh, 53, 54 years. Yeah. Awesome. Well, congratulations. I know many of your. Uh, uh, your, uh, th those have, who have gone before you, uh, who are now French colonels or generals. So congratulations. I, uh, I hope you enjoy the, your semester there. Thanks, sir. Nice to meet you. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, sir, uh, for what you do. I hope, um, you know, the, the bonds and friendships that I'm creating with, with my roommate will hopefully, you know, have some sort of future impact like you're having. So, um, yeah. But I guess to round out this episode, do you think you could uh, give advice to any vets that are looking to pursue a similar path? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say yeah, kind of one of the things I said at the very beginning is just uh, be, re you know, be, uh, be resilient and responsive. Um, you know, you never know where your Air Force career is going to take you or life is going to take you. So, you know, it's important to be, you know, be ready be prepared, uh, whether it's professionally and personally, you know, so it's important to keep everything in line professionally and personally. But, uh, uh, like I said, I kind of had several different inflection points throughout my career. I never thought I'd, you know, serve, you know, be uh, sipping champagne and in, in Paris and trying to get a B1 to land at a, at a French airfield. So, um, so I just say, be ready for the curveballs, be ready for the ups and the downs, and always be resilient, uh, which is what you're learning there at the academy. I mean, I know there's all kinds of ups and downs. You know, I I, I didn't mention it, but you know, I mean, I was an instructor in all three of the airplanes that I flew and an evaluator. So that's that's been great. But you know, certainly I had my share of hard knocks along the way. You know, failing rides, over G's, you know, mm -hmm. or, or or what have you. But uh, yeah, my, my advice would just be be resilient. You know, there's good days and bad days, but um, can enjoy the ride because I've certainly enjoyed mine. Definitely. Well, sir, I really appreciate I really appreciate your time for the second time. Um, yeah, I think I think I mean this time you got to meet my roommate, giving back to the academy. So thank you. Hey, you bet, Andrew. It was great to be with you, and uh, look forward to uh, listen to more of your for the Zoomy podcast because I've enjoyed uh, several. Thank you. Sweet. Thank you.